0: It's my hope that next year at this time, uh, our Bibles will just naturally fall open to 1 Peter. We'll be spending some time in this book together. We have probably around 35 sermons or so as we're looking at uh, this major series on an important book of the Bible. I believe that God has great things for us in this book. First Peter has captivated my attention, and we as elders believe that this is a profoundly timely book for us as a church. And here's one of the reasons why. We live in a progressively intolerant age, and... Christians are increasingly marginalized, misrepresented, and mistreated. You see this in education, you see it in the media, you see it in sexual identity, and in more. It seems very likely that in the future, Christians in our nation will face even greater opposition because of our commitment to Christ, And our church family must be prepared to live in a world that is increasingly hostile to us. Some Christians are going the way of fitting in. They are compromising and conforming to the world, failing to be holy, failing to be distinct. And then other Christians are going the way of fear. They are panicking and troubled. They are bemoaning the direction of our culture. The way forward for the people of Christ is not fitting into this world, and it is not fearing the world. It is being faithful in this world by standing firm and staying joyful in Christ and in the gospel. And church, we need this book. This is what First Peter is all about. Our sermon title today is Grace for God's Exiles. Uh, the introduction in the first two verses is what we'll look at. It is theologically rich and it sets the stage for what's to come. We're also going to use this morning to introduce some of the major themes of this book. And so let's look at First Peter, these first... Two verses. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Words of power that can never fail. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May God bless the preaching of his word. I wonder, have you ever been in a situation where you have known that in that particular place, you were out of place, that you were different from everyone else? I was thinking about this question, and for me, eighth grade comes immediately to mind. It was a rough year. I was homeschooled until eighth grade. And didn't know anything about the world of public school. I'd never opened a locker, never navigated finding a seat in the cafeteria, never rode on a bus. Uh, a kid named Keith said he wanted to fight me after school. I said, no thanks. I appreciate you, Keith. Um. A girl named Rachel said she wanted to go out with me. I said, I don't know what that means and I don't drive. I, was, I remember I was confused because students were asking to use the bathroom. Uh, they seemed to be asking to use the lab, like a chemistry lab, and uh, they were actually saying lav for laboratory. But I distinctly remember how everyone looked at me the first time I raised my hand in class and asked to use the lab um, instead of the lab. I eventually assimilated, which of course uh, in junior high is a very frightening and terrifying thing in and of itself. In 1 Peter, we learn that God's plan for Christians is that we be out of place in this world. We are to stand out as different, not because we are weird or unintelligent. We are to stand out as different because we are the people of Christ who belong to another place. Uh, what Peter does in this introduction is introduces himself and then states the identity of Christians in all place. In verse 1, you see he introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Sometimes in scripture, that word apostle is used in a very broad sense, referring to all who are sent for the sake of the gospel. Here, the word is used in a narrow and technical sense, referring to the unique authority that Peter has as an eyewitness of Christ and an author of scripture. He's not just an apostle. He is is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He introduces himself in this way that his readers would know this is more than his personal opinions. He is commissioned by Christ to communicate the Word of God, and we today should receive this entire letter as God's Word to us. And then after establishing his own Identity, the remainder of verses 1 and 2 describe our identity as Christians. Uh, This letter was originally written to Christians, the churches in many different areas in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. There's a phrase in verse 1 that introduces what is perhaps the major theme of. 1 Peter, if we had to narrow it down to one theme, it would be summarized in this phrase, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Elect, chosen by God for salvation. Exiles means that the people of Christ are sojourners and strangers in this world. An exile is someone who is not living in their homeland. They are an alien resident. A group of exiles is referred to as a dispersion, those who are scattered to another place. This is a metaphor that Peter is using to describe the identity of believers in this world. And it needs to inform the way that we think about ourselves. All Christians... Us included, all Christians are elect exiles of the dispersion, which means this world is not your home. You are chapter two verse eleven says, sojourners and exiles in this world now exile is is an image that actually has, and Peter will do this throughout he draws from the Old Testament, from Old Testament imagery and teaching. This has the world of the Old Testament in view. God's people there were taken away from their homeland into Babylon. Later in chapter 5, verse 13, Peter refers to Rome as Babylon. What's he doing? He's wanting his readers to understand that exile in a foreign land continues to be the position of believers today, both in the day that Peter was writing and Christians throughout history until our Lord returns. This is an essential part of our identity. And I fear that too many Christians have not considered what it means that we are exiles in this world. We have not considered the implications of this identity For our daily lives. Too many Christians are seeking to make this world their home. And what we need, brothers and sisters, is to be challenged. We need to be equipped to live for Christ in the midst of Babylon. To live for Christ in the midst of an unbelieving society. How will we stand firm? How will we stay joyful? in the midst of cultural decline and opposition and suffering of many kinds? The answer is found in 1 Peter. Ed Clowney says that 1 Peter is a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. So you can think of it that way. We are pilgrims in a distant land. This world is not our home. What help do we have? God has given us this traveler's guide for us as pilgrims as we travel through this world. This book will equip us and encourage and strengthen us for this time that we are spending in a strange land away from home. Now, I want to introduce some of the major themes of 1 Peter by considering what does it mean that we are exiles in this world, exiles of the dispersion. Three points that we'll look at. First, we endure hardship Second, we pursue holiness, and third, we embrace hope. And we will return to these themes again and again as we are in this book and unpack them at great length. First, we endure hardship. The Christians Peter is writing to, this was in the early 60s AD, were experiencing trials of many kinds. They were slandered they were reviled and harassed. They were marginalized for their faith. This was a time in which Christians were looked down upon. They were socially ostracized. It was during Nero's reign, and we learned from history that greater persecution would soon come their way. It's so important for us as Christians living in America to understand and to bring a historic perspective of this reality that many Christians have experienced this reality of suffering and far worse over the past 2,000 years. I read this week that more than, more than 3,400 Christians have been murdered this year alone by Nigerian jihadists. That's an average of 17 Christians in Nigeria being killed every day. First Peter prepares us for opposition. First Peter prepares us for suffering. You can really derive an entire theology of suffering from this book. Peter says that now for a little while this is chapter 1 verse 6 he says for a little while we are grieved by various trials But he reminds us of God's good purposes in it. He says that we are called to suffer in this world just as Christ suffered in this world. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. <laughs> Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Talk about equipping our minds to endure suffering. First Peter talks specifically about the hardship of unjust rulers the hardship of being slandered and reviled by those in this world, even the specific hardship of being married to an unbelieving husband. It speaks to all who suffer by addressing trials of many kinds. We know Christians today are also slandered and And reviled. The world says that we are intolerant, oppressive, homophobic, anti-science, anti-women, and more. If you want to be a faithful Christian, it is inevitable that you will be maligned in these ways. Trials of many kinds. We also have, and we prayed for them earlier in the service, a number of dear saints in our church who are sick, some who are dying, some who are grieving loss. We have some in our church who are treated unjustly. We are enduring sorrows of many kinds, and I believe First Peter is going to be used as a timely word from the Lord to strengthen us and to sustain us in the midst of suffering. God wants you, suffering Christian, he wants you to know and to rest in the promise that he will not abandon you. He is at work even in the fiery trial that you now experience, and your present sorrows, says the Lord in First Peter, your present sorrows will one day result in future praise and glory. Chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you First Peter helps us endure hardship as exiles Second a second implication of being exiles, is that we pursue holiness. Because this world is not our home, we are not to be conformed to the ways of this world. The call to be a holy and obedient people stands out as a major theme in 1 Peter. It's introduced, in fact, in verse 2, as a part of our identity. We're told that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of, of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. This is a glorious, dense, theologically rich, uh, doxological summary of our salvation. Consider at the outset of this book, Peter says, that you have been saved and that your salvation is a glorious work of the triune God. Planned By the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Spirit. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God the Father chose us, before the foundation of the world, to belong to Him. To be foreknown by God means that God set His love upon you, apart from any goodness in you, and apart from anything you have done. Salvation is God's initiative... And the only reason that you and I are saved is because God pursued us in His sovereign grace. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but then the Spirit is also at work. And what's the Spirit doing? Sanctifying us, which means setting us apart as holy. We are given, in Christ, a holy standing before God, we have been definitively sanctified and we progressively grow in holiness in our lives as we are progressively sanctified and conformed into the image of Christ. And third, we see that we have been saved for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Obedience because he is Lord and the sprinkling of his blood because he is Savior. That imagery of obedience and sprinkling of blood is imagery that comes from Exodus 24 verses 3 through 8 where sacrifices are made. Moses sprinkles blood on the altar and then the people declare, they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. It is the obedience, and it is the sprinkling of blood. We know that that language of the sprinkling of blood in connection to Jesus Christ is one of the most glorious phrases in all of Scripture, because it speaks of, with the Old Testament sacrifices in view speaks of that greater sacrifice, speaks of the ultimate sacrifice, the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The most important question that anyone will ever answer is how can sinners like you and I be accepted by a holy God? And the answer is only by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. How can we be forgiven? How can we be cleansed? How can those who are currently dwelling under the burden of guilt and shame? You know it. The Spirit was at work even earlier in this service, calling to mind the reality that there are those who are presently burdened by sins you have done. And for some of you, the shame does seem unbearable. The guilt seems more than you can handle. What hope is there for sinners? Our hope is the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Greater than all our guilt, greater than all our sins, covering over all of our shame is this blood of Christ that never fails. This is is who we are in Christ. We are those who have been covered by the blood of our Lord and Savior. We are those who have been forgiven of our many sins, foreknown by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit of God, cleansed by God the Son through the sprinkling of His precious blood. The Father has chosen you, the Son has died for you, and the Spirit is changing you. This is the riches of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. And friends, if you have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, come to Him today. Repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ that you too might experience the forgiveness of sins, the freedom that comes, the eternal life, the hope that comes from trusting in Christ alone for our acceptance before God and for our salvation. We rejoice in the sprinkling of the blood of Christ because we know that his blood can make the filthiest of sinners clean. (laughs) That there are none who are so far removed from him that they cannot be washed clean through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior as those who have been redeemed, as those who have had our sins covered by that sprinkled blood, we are set apart as holy and we are called to pursue holiness in practical life. Not to earn our salvation, but because we have been saved. Chapter 1, verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also Be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Chapter 2, verse 24, says he himself, speaking of Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why did he do it? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness. 1 Peter is a radical call to holiness in our personal lives, in our homes, in the church, and in society. All of those applications are made in this book as applications of what a holy life looks like for believers today. I personally have been reading 1 Peter with an eye to the parts of my life that I most need this call to holiness. So when I get to chapter 3, verse 8, and it commands sympathy and brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, too often my heart is not tender toward others. Too often, what goes on in my mind could not be described as a humble mind. My proud mind needs this book. Chapter 3, verse 9 says that I am to bless those who revile and mistreat me. Okay, so there will be those and there are those who mistreat me, those who sin against me, How am I to relate to them? So often what I want is for them to experience the same things that I have experienced. I want it to not go well with them. I need this book. Chapter three, verse 15 says that I am to be gentle and respectful in my communication. Chapter four, verse seven says that I am to be self-controlled. And then the verses that follow there in chapter 4 call me to love others with a love that covers over sin, that I am to practice hospitality, that I am to serve others. I read this book and there's one thing that becomes really clear to me and that is that I am not yet the kind of Christian that God calls me to be in 1 Peter. None of us are. And one of my concerns is that that Christians have become too much like the world. We talk like the world, we are proud and combative like the world, we indulge ourselves like the world, we slander and envy like the world. And the reason this is so concerning is that if we are no different from the world, we will not be able to reach the world for Christ. One of the things First Peter does, you'll, we'll see this as a theme, there is a special emphasis placed upon the witness of our daily lives. It is as we keep our conduct honorable, it is as we relate to those who mistreat us and those who are wrong, as we relate to them with gentleness and with respect, as we refuse to speak against others, as we honor even unjust rulers, God says it is then that people will be won to the Christ we proclaim. There is beauty in, in a holy life that attracts others to Christ. And so we need to pray both for our own sakes, for our own lives and for our community and for a watching world. Pray that God helps us to grow in holiness together through this study of 1 Peter. 1 Peter helps us pursue holiness as exiles, as those who have received the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then finally, the third point, uh, that we are exiles means that we embrace hope. We embrace hope. This is in fact where Peter is going to start, and so we will see this even beginning next week as we jump into chapter 3. We need to know that we have been born again to a living hope Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 3, we need to know that there is an inheritance kept in heaven for you, that's verse 4, and we set our hope fully, not partly, we set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 13. And it is for this reason that we can expect the world around us Will ask us for a reason for the hope that is in us. Chapter 3, verse 15. This is fundamental to what it means to be an exile. To be an exile means our citizenship is in heaven. Totally changes the way that we view life in this world and in this nation. Nations rise and fall, our heavenly inheritance is secure. And as elect exiles, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in God. Our hope is not in Nero or any earthly authority, but in Christ. They can take our cultural influence. They can take our freedoms, but they cannot take our hope. We are a people of living hope. We have a hope that is sustained. Think about this. How is your hope sustained? It is sustained not by anything in this world, not by earthly circumstances, but by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Your hope is sustained by the promises of God. And I have I have prayed, oh, how we need, how I need eternity in my heart. We need to experience the transforming power of this living hope in our lives. The reason First Peter talks so much about the future is not escapism. It's because that future makes all the difference here and now. This living hope is what gives us peace and joy. This living hope... That is to come invades our lives in the present, transforming our relationships, transforming our conduct, changing our view of this world and of the future. That's what, that's what we're going to jump into next week. Verses three and following celebrates the living hope that we have. And Peter will return to this hope again and again. First Peter helps us embrace hope as exiles. And it is a hope that fixes on the future that makes all the difference in the here and now. Now, one more line, and I close with this from the greeting that we need to give attention to. I'm so affected as we were singing grace and peace earlier. The end of verse two is a prayer that grace and peace would be multiplied to us. May grace and peace be multiplied to you do you need grace today we need grace don't we we are desperate for more of the grace of god not just a little bit of grace and peace we need grace and peace multiplied to us we need an abundance of grace we need an abundance of peace from god to be given to us as we consider the threats that we face in our culture, we need grace that we do not go the way of fitting in, and we need peace that we do not go the way of fear. Grace and peace to enable us to remain faithful. Grace to endure hardship. That's what God multiplies his grace that we might do, endure hardship. He multiplies his grace that we might pursue holiness so that we are not left to ourselves, because there is an abundance of grace that comes helping us as we fight against sin, pursuing righteousness and obedience. And there is an abundance of grace, a multiplied grace to us, that will help us to live in the good of the living hope that is ours in Christ. And so as Peter reaches the end of this letter, we'll see this sometime from now when we get to the end of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 12 is where Peter says, he explains his goal in writing, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's, That's the message that God has for us. Church, stand firm. Yes, trials will come. Stand firm. Yes, sin clings closely to us. Stand firm in pursuing holiness. Yes, we are tempted to to despair. What do we have? We have a hope. Stand firm in that hope. That is where this book comes and helps us, that by God's grace, we together as his people might might be known as a people who are standing firm. Why? Because we are the recipients of the true grace of God. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to join with me in praying. As we start out a book like this, we need to, together as his people, acknowledge our need for God's help. We long for God's spirit to move. We want to encounter him in this book in ways that changes us and transforms us and revives us. Let's pray that God uses this study of this glorious and timely book to help each one of us stand firm in his grace and be faithful as Christian exiles in this world. Amen.